If you are a person of extremes, emotions, moods, behaviors, addictions, obsessions, all or nothing thinking, this podcast is for you. We're going to get deep into healing from behavior patterns that disconnect us from our true selves. Welcome to the Middle Cath, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. I am your host, Kathy. Healing isn't chosen, it's demanded. I am no stranger to addictive, obsessive, compulsive behavior. When I get one addiction under control, another one, or more, pops up to take its place. From achievement, people-pleasing, and praise to sugar, cigarettes, and alcohol, my experience of addiction is seeking external solutions to the inner problem of low self-worth. I learned from a holistic MD about the concept of the mind as a pool table. The pool balls are the stressors rolling around, which we try to get into pockets to relieve our minds and find balance. Exercise can be a great, healthy pocket. Alcohol is a highly effective pocket in that it works great short term to clear all the balls off the pool table. In the just say no era of the early 1990s, no adult ever said people do drugs because they actually work short term. The momentary relief and what feels like an escape from suffering is why we have addictions, because the present moment is our actual life and suffering in it can be unbearable. I will now take you through a tour of my addictions. Not all made my life unmanageable. In fact, I was quite functional until I wasn't. Cigarettes, alcohol, and sugar were things I tried to moderate or quit multiple times before doing so. With all three, it was an immediate medical need, not valuing my life or longevity, that gave me the reason to really do it. There had to be a forcing function. In my 20s, my hyperthyroidism diagnosis prompted me to quit smoking cigarettes. The reason being, it can cause bulging eyes in people with a condition, and it's irreversible. That sounded more immediately distressing to young me than my long-term mortality, so it gave me a good excuse to finally quit. In my experience, smoking was an expression of self-hatred. Sure, there was some pleasure and a sense of rebellion in it at first, but more importantly, it was the way to get a break at work. Instead of taking a real break for me, a walk, anything else, it was easier to have the addiction to feed than to claim time for myself. I still believe the opportunity to stop and take deep breaths is half of the power of the experience, but to have it, the cost of nicotine addiction is high. About cigarettes. My grandfather died of emphysema. When he learned of his diagnosis, he famously quit on the spot. Years later, long after his last smoke, after finishing a meal, he patted his shirt breast pocket, reaching for cigarettes that weren't there. By the late 90s, when I started at 17, I was well aware it was a deadly risk. But my low self-worth and total desperation for freedom and rebellion won out. I didn't see how I wasn't getting free. I was shackling myself to another addiction. My smoking cigarettes, like binge drinking and cursing like a sailor, shocked some people to discover about me. I was obedient to a fault, always polite, 
too nice, a golden child, a PK, preacher's kid. It didn't fit my sunny exterior, but it accurately reflected a deep darkness, heartbreak, and self-hatred. Both were true. I was both very good and very self-hating. High achieving, low self-worth. Two-sided. Being a PK had its perks. It was like being the princess of the religion, a quasi-celebrity. Everyone knew me, even if I didn't know them. I ran into adults all over town who recognized me, but who I barely knew. There was a powerful sense of surveillance at home with a highly controlling mother who was also a teacher at my school and who constantly reminded us that she had eyes in the back of her head. Between her, God, and Santa, someone was always watching, judging, and preparing to punish me. The surveillance expanded to church, where my dad was a priest. Parishioners sometimes transferred their family experience onto us, often addressing my dad as father. An elderly woman very clearly transferred her late daughter onto me, and I selflessly played along, feeling her grief and how I relieved it for her momentarily. My role as the obedient eldest and overachieving golden child was important to the narrative of our externally happy family. I never knew who could see me when I couldn't see them, but I most certainly felt watched a lot. So when, in my senior year of college, an elderly man who generously offered me and my parents a few thousand dollars per semester to help close the gap, enabling me to attend his alma mater that we thought was out of reach for us, caught me smoking. It was a real low. I was sitting outside the dorm where I was a resident advisor, the job that provided me free lodging, including a single room with its own bathroom, as well as a gold star for the leadership position. He confronted me about it later when he dropped off the check personally. I was terrified he would stop payments and I'd have to tell my parents. He didn't. He did express his extreme disappointment at my behavior, which was enough to send me in a hysterical shame spiral after he left. He had written me a letter telling me to not start smoking, and if I had started, to stop. It was the only commandment in his initial letter with his first check. And the tightly controlled golden child in me bristled at being told what to do again. I felt patronized by linking the generously donated money with even more commandments and rules, one way, top down, telling me what to do. I was finally free of my mother, free of my childhood identity. I wasn't having his control either, and I obviously didn't quit. If anything, I smoked more. What's really risky about trying any external soothing source, just out of curiosity, is opening a potential channel to addiction. I haven't smoked a cigarette in nearly 15 years. In my lowest recent lows, it still occurs to me as a potential source of distraction, escape, and the surprising feeling of relief that comes with self-harm and self-destruction. This is also what prevented me from getting my hands on harder drugs in my lowest lows. Knowing that expanding the range of escape sensations would be a forever risk, not a one-time risk. With the onset of bipolar symptoms, however, my own brain created new benchmarks of both low and elevated mood without any substances at all. In my late 30s, a bipolar unspecified diagnosis caused me to quit drinking alcohol. 
Without the heavy-duty psychiatric prescriptions, maybe I'd be drinking even more today. Now that I'm off all prescription meds, adding alcohol back in doesn't sound helpful or even palatable at the moment. I didn't consider myself an alcoholic at the time I quit. Like a lot of people, I binge drank with friends in my younger years. As a grown-up, my life wasn't unmanageable because of drinking. I went through periods of drinking more or less a bottle of wine a night after work. Depending on your experience, that might sound like a lot or not a lot at all. About five glasses over five hours every day seemed reasonable to me. Buzzed, not blotto. I knew it was more than I wanted to or should have been drinking, but I was functional, I thought. That's just where my tolerance was. I would not have quit without the prescriptions. On the way to the bipolar diagnosis, I became so debilitated by depression that I could no longer escape into workaholism. For the first time in my go-go energy life, I could do almost nothing except sleep for weeks on end. With no achievement to cover it up, I finally had to face the depth of my own sense of worthlessness that had been with me my whole life. When I was diagnosed, my kids were five and one. Without my husband, my incredibly strong, deep, and even-keel partner, I do not know how he would have survived it. My inner volcano of rage, suppressed for decades, could no longer be forced down. I found my mother's venomous tone coming out of my own mouth. <clears throat> to my horror, <laughs> my worst nightmare realized. The real gift in it, however, was realizing at long last that the way she treated me was a direct reflection of how she felt about herself. It was her depression and rage, her trauma, and it had absolutely nothing to do with me. I desperately wanted to turn off my dangerous anger. While my psychiatrist could not endorse my use of a cannabis vape pen, even he acknowledged his best tool, a drug called clonopin, was a poor solution to my rage emergency. Clonopin is more addictive and slower acting than marijuana. It simply wasn't a solution to anger at all for me. Insomnia? Helpful. Rage? Not helpful. <laughs> so I chose to self-medicate to save my children, truly. All that mattered was interrupting the rage train before it left the station however I could. I had to shut it down. But like all my external soothing sources, the weed vape helped manage rage as a symptom, but did not cure it, of course. <laughs> the vape pen was discreet, odorless, a life jacket that did keep me afloat temporarily and through the pandemic. I found myself relying heavily on the vape to tamp down rage, and because the oil is so concentrated, my tolerance skyrocketed. I found myself spending much more on the expensive refills than I wanted to. I found myself hooked once again. My life wasn't unmanageable because of it, but it was certainly out of balance and not how I wanted to live or spend money. About marijuana. Where I live, it has been legal for medical use since the mid-1990s and for recreational use since late 2016. Growing up in the 80s and early 90s, it was illegal. As a pathologically obedient overachiever, I felt shame and fear about using it long after legalization. The old fear of authority and judgment stayed with me. Until my miscarriage in 2016. I had abstained from marijuana, alcohol, runny egg yolks, all of it during the pregnancy. The miscarriage was so blindingly painful, it really surprised me because I had already experienced a very difficult childbirth. I wasn't prepared for feeling poisoned for the several days leading up to it. 
At the ER, I had high expectations for relief from the acute pain. If I could count on the hospital for anything, it was pain meds, right? Somehow, the pain broke through both the morphine and the fentanyl. I was stunned. In my recovery in the following days, for the first time, I smoked marijuana without any fear at all of getting caught. I owned it. I had just experienced the awesome creation and awful loss of life inside my body, and no one was going to criticize how I recovered from the unimaginable physical pain and grief. I could create and destroy worlds, and no amount of perceived finger-wagging was going to have any effect. It was me trusting me. I'm a big believer in marijuana's healing properties, and the process vape pens were a problem for me. I didn't have a better solution when I became dependent on them in 2019, and I don't regret any of my addictions. They were the best I could do at the time. I believe I passively quit the vape around the time I also finally quit sugar. The vape was one addiction that faded without me having to forcefully quit. I mentioned briefly that 2019 was the end of my workaholism. Strangely, my depression freed me from it, I see now. This time, I just could not get myself into a chokehold and force myself to perform. It started early in life, the sense of needing to be busy, useful, helpful, hardworking, achieving and earning precious gold stars for praise. In my small Catholic girls' high school, I appeared on more pages of the yearbook than anyone else. Either it's only because my friend was on yearbook, or it's because I compulsively did as many activities as I possibly could, seeking leadership roles in nearly all. I was strung out and miserable chasing gold stars ostensibly to get into college, but really because when love is praise, you can never have enough gold stars. And without gold stars, you can't remain the golden child for free. Love is earned at the cost of yourself and self-differentiation. One gold star that meant a whole lot to my mom and meant nothing to me came in my second semester of senior year of high school. It wasn't my greatest gold star, which I'll expand on later, but it was up there. At the end of the year, when I could practically taste the freedom of graduation, I was crowned Mary's Day Queen. Mind you, this is quite the opposite of Homecoming Queen, which is a popularity contest. I'd already lost the popularity contest the previous year when I ran for president of the school and lost by a landslide. No, this honor was decided upon by the teachers and administration. Maybe they felt sorry for me after losing the election. All I know is I saw it as an obedience award. Teacher's pet, the kiss-ass virgin award. I got to wear a flower crown along with all the girls on the Mary's Day court. I had the honor of putting a mini flower crown on the statue of Mary. I wasn't raised Catholic, but I was queen anyway, and my mom was absolutely livid that I had not shared with her the date and time of my crowning ceremony. She wasn't disappointed about missing out on my moment. She was angry I robbed her of her moment. I could not have cared less at this point. I was already admitted to college. I didn't need this gold star, and I didn't want to be my mom's positive supply anymore. My growing up and moving out led her to discard me that summer. I was taking her positive supply with me, and she was furious. The disgust on her face, constant silent treatment, and even shorter-than-usual temper made me eager to get the hell out. It is also true she was deeply depressed at the time, with plenty of stressors making that worse. Her behavior was largely not about me at all, 
but the feeling of being discarded was undeniable. My go-go energy, I learned from a holistic MD, is from trauma. It continued into working adulthood, where I sometimes pulled utterly unnecessary and kind of creepy all-nighters alone in an office, stressing out, obsessing, and hiding from my deeper internal problems at work. That one massive spreadsheet I couldn't get to work, which kept me chained to my desk in tears, too anxious to sleep, wasn't about the spreadsheet at all. It was me running from low self-worth and emotional dysregulation, desperate to get everything perfect, desperate for control of myself and my life. And the anxiety, insomnia, and obsessiveness was the precursor to the bipolar diagnosis to come 10 years later. Speaking of go-go energy, talking too fast, eating too fast, and moving too fast, driving too fast has been a part of my identity from early on, too. Like binge drinking, smoking, and cursing, road rage doesn't match my nice external image at all. I consider my road rage addiction to be one of my most problematic and dangerous narcissistic fleas. Such fleas are caught from growing up with the self-absorbed. Early on in my awakening, I was certain I was pathologically self-absorbed too. I thought I was just the same, with the same low self-worth as the self-absorbed people in my life. Like fleas, I do have traits and tendencies, and deep self-loathing is one of them. I now know I learned to hate myself. I wasn't born that way. Behind the wheel, especially by myself. Other drivers weren't real people. They were objects, obstacles. On the road, I could unleash my competitiveness. I never wanted to hurt anyone. I just wanted to be first. First peeling away from the red light. First to the best parking space. I enjoyed being faster, more accurate, and better at anticipating other drivers' next moves. With a passenger, especially someone I don't know well, I'd never let it show but by myself, it was on. It was the only place I could really free my inner narcissist to put me first instead of submitting to strangers and accommodating everyone else first. In my early 20s, more than one male friend remarked that they appreciated my aggressive driving because I drive like a man. I don't drive like a man. I drive like a narcissist. I'm more than assertive. I'm aggressive. Many times I've been flipped off shouted at to slow down, and more. People telling me what to do are met with a big, fat, fake smile and wave. I didn't take orders from strangers on the road. I believe I only got one speeding ticket because I never went more than 10 to 20 miles over the speed limit. I didn't go as fast as possible. I just went faster than everyone else. I always drove cars that didn't attract attention. And I'm sure white privilege plays an important part, too. The one time I did get pulled over for a speeding ticket, it was for going 77 in a 65 zone in a very remote area. I was not faster than most on the freeway. That's not even that fast in my mind. And the cop acted like I killed someone. Maybe he could tell. I'd be easy to bully, too, because he was happy to go ahead and dominate me without my consent, because he had all the power in that moment. He was incensed I didn't see him and immediately pumped the brakes. Self-absorbed? Certainly. It wasn't until my neighbor, an actual race car driver, said, 
hey, saw you whipping around out there, that I realized I needed to take a closer look at this addiction. I've only recently started working on it in earnest, and I've healed in other ways too and have capacity to give it up now. In my early 20s, around the holidays, when tensions were high not only in every retail establishment but also on the road, I found myself speeding through one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in my area. For a variety of reasons, extreme wealth has often lit the fires of jealous rage and resentment. Rage at being bullied by rich kids who live there, for one. Rage at the entitled wealthy. Rage for fancy cars and all of it. I went zooming by as someone was trying to make a left into my lane ahead of me. I was doing maybe 40 in a 25 zone, a street no one drove less than 35 miles per hour. She honked. I gave her the finger. And that was the last time I ever made that mistake. She flew into a total rage, followed me, tailing me right on my bumper, pulling up next to me to scream at me and would not let up. Absolutely terrified, I drove to a police station. It was around 2003 or 4, and I had a cell phone by this point. I called the police, letting them know I was coming. I pulled into the station parking lot, driving in slow circles, while she followed me in there. Right into the police station parking lot, because she was that convinced she was in the right and justified. It went so much farther than I could have imagined. I tearfully apologized to the police for giving her the finger and promised to never do it again. Many years later, from my apartment window, I watched a man get out of his car, leave the driver's side door open, and walk to the window of a driver in a different car. He was holding down the button of his taser, gesturing angrily with it. It was clicking menacingly in his hand as he screamed at the very top of his lungs. He had somehow trapped and prevented the other driver from escaping so he could scream at them. Who knows what triggered it? This man had lost his mind. If the taser had been a gun, there would have been a homicide. It looked absolutely insane, which it was. Was it about someone else's bad driving? Certainly not. That was Taser Man's trauma exploding all over the place. No one was going to dominate him, not again. And he took it out on a stranger who pissed him off. Instead of shaking my head, judging him for being immature, dangerous, a terrible person. I saw a potential ghost of Christmas future. Not healing trauma is a real liability and a huge risk, and burying it isn't healing it. Which reminds me of when Will Smith punched Chris Rock on stage at the 2022 Oscars. Rock made a joke about Smith's wife. Smith marched on stage and gave the world a front row seat to witnessing his trauma. After being bullied by his father and arguably his wife too, he took it out on Rock. When I heard canned comments like, violence is never the answer, I think easy for you to say. Principles are for people with full bellies, and those who judge are either ignorant about trauma, in denial about their own trauma, or both. Of course I don't endorse violence, but I don't judge Smith for being just an entitled bully with inexplicable behavior. And on the other hand, as much as I hate shame, I see how public shame serves the purpose of making us all keep reactions like that in check. You can't just punch a person because of your trauma. It's complicated, 
And trauma can result in very regrettable behavior that isn't representative of our truest selves. I saw myself in these people who snapped. I could imagine seeing red and losing control. And I did lose control, but thankfully not in a road rage incident or physical violence. It came with the 2019 breakdown, which ripped away the golden child curse. Like the depression that freed me from workaholism, a work injury that put me on leave for several months created the opportunity to have my awakening to the reality of my supplying the self-absorbed. And that felt like leaving the matrix as one after another self-absorbed person was unmasked. In my early 40s, after healing enough from depression to get a job again, a work injury, tennis elbow, prompted an anti-inflammatory nutrition change that both healed the body and, unexpectedly, increased my self-worth. Increasing nutrition helped me to kick sugar without white-knuckling cravings for the first time. It all started with a roasted acorn squash, which I'd never tasted before. Sugar was my second most destructive and unmanageable addiction. It is the reason we don't have a sugar bowl or brown sugar at home anymore. After eliminating every sugary temptation, saying no over and over to every offer of a treat, the last sneaky available source of sugar was to eat it straight, secretly, at home, several spoonfuls at a time, repeatedly, usually at night. Although I know I'm not alone in this, it is extreme. Sugar is a chemical, not a food. An important part of my sugar addiction is that no Western doctor would have ever discovered it. My numbers were good. I had a toffee body type, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Due to genetics and maybe a fast thyroid, there was little evidence of my addiction because I didn't gain weight. And because I didn't value myself, it didn't matter that I was hurting my body. All that mattered was passing as sane, healthy, and acceptable to others external masking. My sugar addiction started early. In the 80s and 90s, it was fat everyone was afraid of, not sugar. In the 50s, my dad watched commercials about a cereal that was advertised as shot with sugar through and through. Now it seems sugar is the new cigarettes. We finally see what it's doing to us. As a young child, the woman who lovingly cared for me while my parents were working, dad at church and mom at school, sometimes gave me piloncillo, a cone of hardened brown sugar as a treat. She left her sugar bowl out on her dining room table and my sibling and I secretly took heaping bites, passing the spoon back and forth. As a kid, I often just combined powdered sugar and water to make icing for graham crackers or just to eat straight. When I was about 13, I remember assuaging some of my mind-numbing boredom at church by volunteering as an acolyte, an altar server. It helped that my first crush, a devastatingly alluring, self-absorbed, highly talented artist and sponsored skater, might be there. He was so cool, I had no idea how he ended up actually going to church with his mom and participating in youth group. Maybe it was the supply he got from me and other adolescent girls there. The one and only reason I did confirmation at 13 was because he was doing it. 
I was skeptical of the whole thing, including the existence of God, but it was both an important and expected gold star and an opportunity to be around him. Which brings me back to sugar. In addition to feeding my already full-fledged addiction to the self-absorbed, acolyting gave me access to the donuts in the acolyte room. I ate five every Sunday, one for every hour I was stuck there, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., through two identical services and youth group. Why two? I was a PK, a preacher's kid. My dad was an Episcopal priest, formerly a Catholic priest, and my mom was in the choir. In my 20s, I would become a double PK when my mom was ordained a priest too, a lifelong dream for her as a former Catholic nun and former elementary school teacher. Naturally, my parents met at work, a Catholic church. They left the church to elope and raised us Episcopalian. On Sunday mornings in my childhood, they were busy, so we waited. A lot. Only now do I see the parallel between the five donuts in five hours at 13 and the five glasses of wine in five hours by 33. Sugar addiction. But the biggest, baddest, most unmanageable addiction of all was to self-absorbed people. I find the term covert narcissist to be divisive, triggering, and misunderstood. I'll explain that the covert type is much quieter than the classic overt type. Overts are easy to identify, especially among politicians, academics, religious leaders, doctors, lawyers, corporate executives, pro-athletes, and other pinnacle professions. Coverts are there too, but can be more introverted, self-deprecating, and self-effacing in my experience. Instead of covert narcissist, I'm using the term that applies to all narcissists and certainly other people too. The self-absorbed. Starting with my mother and much of my entire family, then mean girl friends, arrogant crushes, and bully bosses, I was dominated by them without my consent, right and left. Certainly not everyone in my life, not everyone in my family, not every friend or every boss by any means, but crushes, almost all were self-absorbed. I was hooked on getting their approval because of transference with my mother. Getting their approval was getting her approval impossible. It was a losing game, a mirage, a trauma bond, not love. The depth of my obsession with them for various reasons and needs reflected the depth of my heartbreak with a mother who couldn't express love. I accepted praise instead, which is hardly a substitute. That was how I learned to accept scraps in so many of my relationships. Of course, the addictions overlap. The night I was almost hospitalized for alcohol intoxication was the night I naively competed with a self-absorbed crush, downing a dozen shots of Jack Daniels, which I'd never had before or since, in quick succession in a matter of minutes. A large percentage of all the cigarettes I ever smoked were just an excuse to talk to him. I trashed my body, mind, and spirit to be near him because of mom transference and low self-worth. And it had almost nothing to do with him, turns out. Separately, I suspect my extreme sugar addiction, in addition to the weed vape cartridges that raised my tolerance, also blunted the healing effects of marijuana. I believe I overloaded these escape tools to the point that they stopped working. I will expand on my addiction to the self-absorbed in the next episode on obsessions. 
The massive dopamine release that came from winning their attention and approval was more powerful than any substance for me. Like substances, however, my codependency with the self-absorbed temporarily fixed a deep wound from a lack of genuine mother love. My mom said she'd love me no matter what. I believe she believed that. But her behavior said otherwise. Now I believe she would love my positive supply no matter what, the gold stars I compulsively earned for praise instead of love. Her definition of love was different than mine, and it was most certainly conditional, often. Behavior has meaning, and her behavior was often the opposite of love. Control, withholding affection until I obeyed, and weaponized shame are not love. They were a reflection of the ocean of trauma she was swimming in, using me as a life preserver, transferring herself onto me, her golden child, to buoy her crushingly low self-esteem. She didn't know me, and as a result, I didn't know me either. Some closing thoughts on addictions. With a bipolar diagnosis, I'm lucky spending and shopping were not my outlet. Aside from salivating over fancy cars for the first time in my life, even test driving a BMW on one of my highest days, I somehow escaped the temptation to spend. This after decades of hating BMW the most of all fancy car brands. The lesson? Be careful what you hate. Shopping wasn't a source of pleasure for me. Clothes shopping for office wear was pure shame avoidance. I hated it, and my only priority was passing as normal at a reasonable price. I was called out at work once for wearing very old sneakers. They weren't dirty or terribly worn, but the branding was way out of fashion. It was Nike Livestrong, which was irrelevant by that time, after the disgrace of cyclist Lance Armstrong, who admitted to doping. I was only wearing them because I was hugely pregnant with swollen feet and had no idea how old they were. A detail I had overlooked in protecting myself from shame that day. Long story short, it wasn't new clothes I was drawn to in my hypomania. The addiction to and obsession with the self-absorbed was number one by far. Finally, I will say about addiction, it's far more prevalent than any of us know because it makes us lie to ourselves. It's okay to do it as long as nobody can tell. I overheard someone telling her two friends about seeing a junkie shooting up outside. It's so easy to have a collective disgust for junkies as the real addicts, to put addiction over there with them where it belongs. When I see junkies, I see the potential ghost of Christmas future once again. The amount of time I spent wondering what it might be like to escape deep depression and suicidal ideation by trying heroin. If it had been remotely easy to get, maybe I would have. All I have to say is, how is judging and othering the junkies preventing the rest of us from facing the fact that we have unhealed trauma too? With my addictions, how am I going to judge a junkie for shooting up mother love instead of eating mother love in the form of sugar like me? I would never have chosen to quit cigarettes, alcohol, workaholism and achievement, weed vapes, sugar, or the self-absorbed without a forcing function like an urgent medical requirement or a psychiatric crisis. And I definitely 
wouldn't have ever given up gluten without the thyroid problem either. Seriously, never. <laughs> Healing from extremes, addictions, obsessions has become non-optional because the alternative is suffering. I have never given up an external soothing source because I valued myself and my life and it was the right thing to do. I did it to avoid greater suffering. Healing isn't chosen, it's demanded. Healing and self-worth are linked. Avoiding suffering through escape methods might work short-term, but long-term, all we definitely have, for sure, is ourselves. We deserve care, health, compassionate reparenting, and positive self-talk. Discovering just a shred of self-worth changed my life. I am learning to value, nourish, and protect myself and heal from extremes. Join me for the next episode of The Middle Cath, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer on a future episode? Contact me at askmiddlecath at gmail.com. <laughs>